Alright students, today is the beginning of the end. We are going to talk about Book 7 of Virgil's Aeneid. We have finished the so-called Odysseic half, the first six books, where he, with his intrepid crewmates, attempts to make it, even, though, even through the rage, the ira, the furor of Juno, to Italy, to uh, the so-called city of Latium, to Hesperia, to Ausonia, all different names for essentially the same place, the place that will someday be Rome. And so now we start the so-called Iliadic half. And if we are going to start the Iliadic half, then we know that there will be what? There will be war. But as of now, we do not yet have cause for war. We have a new people that we are going to meet, and we have not even met them. And so today we will meet a new people. We will meet the Latins, so named, because... Um, of the Latin word latus, which, from which we get the word latent. It means hidden. Hidden in this land is a titan. A titan who is the father of, of Zeus, of Jove, of Jupiter. His name in Greek is Kronos. His name in Roman, does anybody know the Roman name of him? Yes. It is Saturn. Very good. And he was known to be the god that created the golden age of man. And so, this Italy is supposed to be like a place of a golden age, like a, a heavenly sort of place. And in fact, I think we will see in the first description of it that it, much like a reverse negative underworld, looks very much like a positive one. Just as we often cross a river to go into a dark forest or a cave or a subterranean locale to go into an underworld that is either uh, neutral or or evil, so do we often cross a river and go to a plain or a garden in order to go to a positive one, whether it be Eden, whether it be the river we went up in order to first meet the young maiden Nausicaa, or whether it be terrestrial paradise in the Purgatorio, or whether it be here in Italy. So let's see. Book 7 starts with a change of theme. Rather than somebody dying at the end, someone dies at the beginning. And who dies here? Well, it is a figure of Virgil's, or not Virgil's, but rather Aeneas's mother. It is his nurse, nurse Caeta, and he actually names the place that she dies after, uh, after her. And I believe it is still to this day named something like Caeta. It hasn't changed very much. In any case, now his father has died, and he must derive wisdom from him. His mother figure has died as well. If anyone is going to guide Aeneas forward at this point, it is going to be whom? Himself, right. Palinurus also, his steersman, has died. There's no one to lead or direct him and the people forward except for him. Exactly. That's why he left Dido in the first place. And so, Aeneas's nurse, Caeta, dies, and the Trojans sail past Circe's island. Very good. Very good. And as they pass by Circe's island, this is apparently because of the leadership, because of the guidance of Aeneas. This is a travail that they are spared. They hear strange noises from the men's turned into animals by the spells of Circe, but do they actually go to Aya? Do they actually have to witness Circe? No, just as they didn't have to witness Scylla, they went by Charybdis, just as they don't have to witness the sirens. It's as if Aeneas is a better what than Odysseus. Leader, right, because the best leader doesn't simply get you through the most difficult situations. They often keep those difficult situations from coming up in the first place. And so those six people that would have died to Scylla, they survived. In any case, 
here's the evidence for the Eden, for the heavenly uh, nature of this, this home. And you should think about how a home is in a way a haven or a heaven. And so dawn, at dawn, finally after death, Aeneas sees a grove. A grove is a place of trees from which the Tiber, which is a river, the great river of Italy, rushes to the sea. Birds are singing there. The water is calm. And the river is itself shaded. It sounds like it's absolutely what? Perfect. That's right. A nice shade, a calm river, birds singing. What's better than that? What's better than that? In any case, we have an invocation to the muse, a second invocation. And this muse is not the muse of epic poetry. The first muse, Homer's muse, and the muse of the first six books is named Calliope. She is the muse of epic poetry. She is the greatest of the muses. But here we have a second muse um, invoked. We will hear of Urania next year, both in Dante's Paradiso as well as in Milton's Paradise Lost, when the heavens are sung of. She is the singer of astronomy and astrological tales. But here we get Erato. And Erato, as you can see from her name, which looks so like Eros, the son of uh, the son of Venus, is the muse of love poetry, which you immediately see is very ironic and odd and contrary to expectation. Because if, if this is the Iliadic half, the half of war, we would expect a song about what? War. Some sort of war music or some sort of war muse or perhaps Ares or Mars being invoked. But no. Here instead we have Erato, the muse of love poetry. And why? Do we have the muse of love poetry? Well, two reasons. Potentially, we do know that love and war go hand in hand. And we know that Roma, the place that will come from this Rome, backwards as a palindrome, is amor, which is the word for love. We know also that Mars and Venus were known to be lovers. We recall that story in the Odyssey itself. But also, I think it's even subtler than that. Because even though this relationship will start with war, it will end with a mixing of the people. And what is the goal of love always? At least for humans? Reproduction. To produce something new. And in this case, what will be produced which will be new? After this war, will there be Latin people? No. Will there be Trojan people? No. There will be one people that will become whom? The Roman people. And so it's as if the two sides to this battle are like husband and wife and a family. They will at one time be two, but they will become, through the child or the people they will become, what? One. Precisely so. Precisely so. And so we will hear now of wars, of kings, of leaders, driven to death. And of Hesperia, Italy, the western land, filled with war. This task is even greater than the task that came before. And of course, trying to find your way through the world is one thing. Trying to build a new home and meld your people with another people in order to become one is of course the hardest thing and the most interesting thing and the most profound thing that humans can do. Okay, bang, here's the situation. We are now to Latium. Welcome to Latium. Greatest city in Alsonia, Hesperia, on Italy. There at Latium, we have King Latinus and his daughter Lavinia, also Queen Amata. Amata will not like us very much. In any case, 
Lavinia is courted, is courted by many strange omens that force her father to consult with his father, Faunus, who is a rustic, rural, woods deity. And what he will predict is that though Lavinia is so beautiful and so many men near her, including one named Turnus, who will be our great antagonist here, want to marry her, that no, no, quite... Quite like Nausicaa, and yet quite unlike the fate of Nausicaa. Quite like the desire of Nausicaa, but unlike the fate of Nausicaa. She will find herself turned towards a new man, a foreign man, this Aeneas. Much like Dido as well, except for without the negative consequences. Well, perhaps not. Perhaps these consequences will be worse. Though Dido herself died, uh, it will be the case that there will be a war fought over Lavinia. And so, sort of interesting to say, in any case, Lavinia's heart will be turned towards Aeneas. And the prophecies will turn towards Aeneas, too. Because that is what Latinus here will learn. So, we hear here that Latinus is deeply descended from Saturn. And as we know, Saturn is the one who is supposedly hidden in this land, making it so rich. Very good. He sees a first omen. And the first omen is one that we expect from Virgil. We see, uh, mythologically, bees often. Bees swarm in the palace to the top of a laurel tree. Very interesting, very interesting. Uh, in the Eclogues, in the Georgics written by Virgil, he mentions bees. Also, when we read Dante next year, at the top of heaven you will see the souls there described as bees to flowers and sometimes flowers to bees. Hmm. It's almost as if they are themselves a metaphor for an orderly society that follows... Uh, the, a society which follows the dictates of order and is thus successful and produces fruit. In any case, the bees swarm to the top of a laurel tree. Well, something interesting about the laurel tree, we know that the laurel tree is, of course, the tree that Daphne turned into when Apollo attempted to take her. She was a nymph. She was running from him. He was attempting to abduct her by force, but she turned into a tree when she prayed to her, uh, her father, who was a river, uh, in order to save her. Apollo then took one of her branches and said that that would crown him and all the victors that came after him instead of having her for himself. And so these people who live in Latium are also called the Laurentines because of the laurel tree that is there and of the holiness of Apollo. And we hear here from a prophet, a foreigner is coming and the army will rule over the citadel. It is as if the bees represent who, who is coming. The Trojans themselves. And the things about bees is they bring order, they bring honey, but they also bring the what? They bring the stingers, too. That's right. So if we're going to get the honey from these Trojans first, we're going to have to feel the what? The sting. That's right. That's right. All right. Next weird, weird, weird omen that we see. While Lavinia is helping her father with the altars, her hair catches on fire, which is very interesting because we had seen earlier some fire appear above someone's hair. Who is it that we had seen fire appear over the head of in Book 2 during the fall of Troy, indicating hope for the future, which gave Anchises a reason to live? Ascanius, the son of Aeneas. Very good. And so again, we see a light leading towards the future, light on the top of the head of a young individual, sort of like... Um, seems to mean something like a light that will lead forward, forward into the future that makes their uh, 
gives you a reason to see the future. Interestingly enough, also light on the head is the prefiguration of the halo that you see in Christian mythography. Um, you see lights on top of the head indicating a full or rich perspective. We'll talk about that ad infinitum ad nauseum next year. In any case, this, in, this is interpreted to mean that she will be famous. She will give light. She is sort of bright like Diomedes was in book 5, bright like Achilles was, uh, let's say books 21 to 24 in the Iliad, and, but that her people will encounter war. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. In any case, Latinus goes to his father Faunus. He goes out into the woods. He needs to figure out what's going on. Why are all these omens happening? Why are there bees now uh, flooding into a city and going up to the top of a world tree? Why is his daughter's hair catching on fire? Things are a little spooky. Things are a little weird. We need to understand what this means. Things are quite portentous at this time. And so we go out to a place of Italian sacrifice. Uh, and a place where people go to receive information from dreams. Apparently if you go to sleep out in this particular place, you can be visited by strange dreams. Just like Achilles was visited by Patroclus in a strange dream. In book 23 of the Iliad. Or Agamemnon by a strange dream. A, uh, a false dream in book 2. Though not in a particular sacred place. So we hear in an oracle. Do not marry your daughter to an Italian. She will marry a foreigner who will raise our race to the stars and will rule the world. Well, we've heard this language before. I give him empire without end to be measured neither by space nor by time. To be measured not or to be measured by the limits of the ocean and the limit of the stars themselves, which people will be so limited, or so unlimited, neither by time nor by space, who will come from the Trojans? The Roman people. And so we know that it will be a Trojan that will marry this Lavinia, but not without a what first? A fight. Make sure you're following. That is very obvious. Latinus did not keep the oracle a secret either. And so, of course, the god we know best, rumor, spread throughout all of Italy. And right at that time, a Trojan fleet arrives. How convenient! How convenient! And so, the Trojans show up. They do not yet know about any of this. They are not privy to the knowledge of the Latins. They've just gotten to this very heavenly-looking place. They've sailed up the river Tiber. It was nice and shady. Things were calm. And they're finally here. And things are going just fine for them. Just fine for them. They have a feast. Here they are. And, well, at this feast they heap <coughs> their thin pita-like bread high with various foods because they're so hungry. And while they're doing this, Ulysses exclaims, make sure you're writing this. Yes, that's a slide. We do that. Look, we have eaten the tables. And Aeneas seizes these words and cries, Hail, land! Owed to me by fate. Here is our home. My father predicted we would eat tables at the side of our new land. Let us explore this land and meet its peoples. First, let us pray to Jupiter, to Anchises, and finish the feast. And so, the Harpies, the terrible Salina who gave us that prophecy much earlier in book three that we would someday have to eat our tables, which we thought would mean that we would starve, actually means that through the ingenuity of the Trojans, they would someday have pita, they would put a lot of food on that pita, and then they would eat it in celebration. So, I suppose the idea here is that it is a somewhat humble feast, and yet it is a feast itself. It is the occasion that makes the feast, not simply the food itself. 
In any case, Aeneas reads his temple. So you read your temple when you're a champion. He has accomplished something. He has gotten them to where they're going, even though who has stood against them, which dread goddess? Juno. Yes, the queen of the gods. And then Jupiter thunders three times. It shows a blazing cloud in an otherwise clear sky. This is important. They see they are in the right place. Finally, they've gotten so many signs from the gods that they were in the wrong places. Plagues. Polydorus. Sad, dried up rivers. Uh... Women burning ships. All sorts of things to show them that the place that they're at is not the place that they need to be. Oh, yeah, also, of course, Dido killing herself. Uh, that was terrible, too. But now they're finally where they need to be. And so, we send an embassy to King Latinus. There's a city here. This is the place that we're supposed to live. We should get along peaceably with these people. And so Aeneas sends a hundred envoys because he's taking this very, very seriously. Not one, not two, not ten. 100 of his men, and he remains behind to mark out the walls of his first settlement. So he produces a camp. This is very interesting. And he stays behind that camp. He sends his own people forward first. We recall this sort of behavior from how he first engaged with Dido. That said, him establishing a camp with him there, the city being there in front, reminds us a bit of the Achaeans and the Trojans behind their walls. In any case, we, and again, more prefigurations of potential violence. Not only do we have our own camp here, but what do we see the Latin men doing out in front of their city? Oh, they're performing military exercises in front of the walls. Again, we can see them sharpening their swords. We think, hmm, this might go well. It might go well without violence. And yet, all this foreshadowing makes us a little bit uneasy. Well, the king invites the embassy inside the city, and Latinus's palace is described, just as we had Juno's temple described in Carthage. It is very holy. That's what the word sanctity means. It is a place of sacred objects. It has images of his ancestors, and so it is a place of tradition, and has many arms on display, many uh, weapons. That means they are a warlike people. The Trojan, or Trojan people are a warlike people. This will probably be a good war between them, but they will make it even stronger people from their two warlike bloods. And that is the idea here, that the Latins are no mean people, and that to defeat them would be no mean feat, and that to mix with them would make a great people, and apparently it does. Those Romans lasted for quite a bit of time. That said, the arms on the wall are a bit of more foreshadowing. We see omens of war everywhere. It is in the air itself. And so Latinus welcomes the Trojans hospitably. <coughs> Tell us why you Trojans, whom we have heard of before, have come here. You have come to the land where the race of Saturn lives peacefully, without the rule of law. It's very interesting. They don't need laws because they treat each other so right. I remember that the elders told that Dardanus left from here for Troy. And now he has become a god. Interestingly enough, they have a blood connection between each other. You recall that the Trojans are sometimes called the Dardanians. They're called Dardanians because of their old king, Dardanus. And Dardanus apparently came from Italy at one point. And so there is a blood connection between these peoples already. And so they should just get along. Well, the first envoy from uh, the Trojans then said, named Ilioneus, replies, We come from Troy, exiles, by the will of Jupiter. And Aeneas sends us here. Having suffered the horrors of the Trojan War and the danger of our long voyage, we seek a small home for our gods, a safe landing area, and to live in this free land. Sounds fair enough to me. No proclamation of war there. 
Uh, no ill intent there. We have suffered many terrible things because of fate and the gods. We've come here to be free. Well, we will help. We'll be a help to your kingdom. Don't scorn us because we come as suppliants. For the gods force this upon us. Dardanus returns and Apollo orders this. Here are gifts from Aeneas, a libation bowl of Anchises, and the royal accoutrement of Priam. Those are uh, the probably clothes, but also items that would have belonged to Priam. Accoutrement is just a French word for the things of Priam. His scepter, his crown, and his robes. These are kingly gifts. These are literally kingly gifts. A crown, a scepter, the robes of a fallen king. Perhaps, uh, perhaps you see this in two ways, though. The one way to see this is these are quite fine gifts, the finest you can possibly imagine. The other way you might look at this is perhaps an intimidation tactic, because if you're giving a current king a fallen king's accoutrement, what might you be saying about this king in the future? That he will surely that he will surely fall. That he will surely fall. And to whom will he fall? The Trojans themselves. Should he fight against them? In any case, Latinus looks over these gifts. And he looks over these Trojans, and he realizes that Trojans don't come from Italy, and therefore they're what Foreigners. Foreigners! Well, they're ruled by a guy named Aeneas, and he's single. So what dots does he connect in his head? I have a daughter named Lavinia. She's supposed to marry a foreigner. Some foreign people just showed up. Who should marry his daughter? Aeneas. Aeneas. One problem. She's already promised to somebody named, not Yarvis in this case, but Turnus. Yes, exactly, Turnus. And do you think that Turnus will be so happy about this new foreign man showing up out of nowhere and then being offered his fiance because of a prophecy that the fiance's father heard from his earth spirit father? I was just hanging out in the woods yesterday, and uh, I heard a voice say that I was supposed to marry someone that was not, or give my daughter away to someone that's not you. And so, I'm going to probably listen to that voice in the woods. I'm sorry, all the preparations you made, very nice, but it's not going to happen. How would anybody feel about that? Probably pretty upset and willing to do something crazy, in any case. Latinus says, I grant what you seek. I want to speak with Aeneas face to face. Tell him that I have a daughter. <laughs> Listen to how straightforward this is. Tell him I have a daughter who must marry a foreigner who will exalt our fame to the stars. I believe that he is the man for my daughter. Doesn't leave much to the imagination there. He straight up tells them what he thinks. In any case, Latinus then puts a good faith gift alongside the envoys in Ileonius. He gives each envoy a horse decked with gold trappings. He's very serious about this. He's like, let's move this forward. And for Aeneas, he selects a chariot and two horses bred from the stock of Circe. Apparently she's got some immortal horse stock. Or rather, who had mated with an ordinary mare with the immortal horses of her father, the son. Wow. In any case. Things are going so well. The Trojans have shown up. The waters were calm. The Latin people seem pretty reasonable. And they seem pretty welcoming. And they give good guest gifts. And... They seem to want Aeneas to marry the princess. Sounds perfect. Well, whenever a situation is going pretty well for the Trojans, who looks down from heaven 
sees that things are going well and decides, no, 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 no. Juno, indeed. Juno looks down upon this sickeningly sweet situation, the saccharine situation. She gives a very, very famous quote. These cursed Trojans, they have escaped Troy and have avoided all the troubles that I have tried to inflict upon them and now have reached their haven in Latium. You really must see her as the Wicked Witch of the West. Mars and Diana could get their way against mortals, but I, Jupiter's wife, cannot and am defeated by Aeneas. If I am powerless, I will unleash the powers of Hades. She has entreated the gods. The gods are not on her side, and so now she will go down to Hades. She will go down to the deepest pit of Hades. She will go to Tartarus. In Tartarus, she will find a fury, the greatest of the furies, the foulest of the furies. Her name is Electo. She will then ask Electo to do her bidding, just as she asked the winds and Aeolus to do her bidding at the beginning of this story. Now she will descend to hell to do her will. Aeneas may get his bride. But I will delay this event as long as possible. And this marriage will be as unlucky as that of Hecuba, who bore Paris, who then caused the Trojan War. Juno reaches Earth, and down into Earth, she goes to Electo. Electo is described as a snake-covered fury, loathed even by Dis, the king of the underworld, and her sisters. And Juno says, grant me a favor, stop Aeneas from this marriage, and protect my honor. Spread hatred and war everywhere. And on Wednesday, we will see that how she will spread hatred and war, is she will go to Queen Amata, and she will go to Turnus, and she will turn their prejudices against the Trojans. We will also see a very funny domesticated deer very unfunnily get killed. Until then...